Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. In recent months, mass testing and vaccinations against COVID-19 have occurred inside Connecticut's prisons. 19 incarcerated people in our state have died from the virus. But now that a full year has passed since the pandemic began, how will leaders work to address systemic issues in the state's correctional system, like the continued use of solitary confinement? Today, where we live, we talk about efforts to end this practice. Coming up, we hear from members of Stop Solitary CT. We also hear the latest on how leaders plan to close some prisons as the incarcerated population continues to decline. First, joining us is Kellen Lyons, a reporter who covers justice for the Connecticut Mirror, and he's a Report for America core member. Kellen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I wanted to just get an update on the fact that it has been a year now since the pandemic began, and I wanted to learn how this virus continues to affect people inside Connecticut's prisons and jails. So can you tell us uh, the latest in terms of not only mass testing, but the vaccination campaign inside prisons? Sure. So the vaccination is rollout is continuing. Uh, roughly 46% of the incarcerated population has been vaccinated uh, as of yesterday. Um, as of, and as of yesterday, also 4,352 uh, incarcerated folks have had COVID, um, which is a number that equates to about half of the prison population as of yesterday's numbers, uh, although the population has changed and declined over the course of the pandemic. Um, it's tough to say what, where that fits in nationally as far as our, our vaccinations go, because different states have had different policies. Some states haven't even started to roll out the vaccine quite yet. Um, but it, our staff vaccination rates are about in line with the rest of the nation, which is about 48%, around half. Um, that's what we're seeing nationwide as well. Um, as far as life is sort of starting to go back to normal, um, in some ways. I mean, the big things, there's no contact visits that are back. Um, each prison has a different policy, but for the most part, it seems as though um, housing units are, are staying together. Um, their guys aren't locked in their cells for, for quite as long as they were toward the beginning of the pandemic. Um, recreation time is being increased a little bit uh, in certain facilities. Um, there are still, still no volunteers going into the facilities, um, but it looks like things are starting to somewhat approach normalcy compared to what it was this time last year. Just recap something that you shared, Kellen. Did you say about half the incarcerated population has had COVID? Well, it's tough to say because the numbers okay. ha have changed so much. There are about 3,000 fewer people who are in prison as of right now, 3,500 fewer in prison right now than there were uh, on March 1st. So I was just simply saying that the, the figure that of the number of people who have had COVID um, is equivalent to half of what the incarceration, incarcerated population is today. But I wouldn't say that half of the people who have been in prison have caught COVID. It's just a matter of how the population has changed since March 1st of 2020. 
Got it. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, we know that there are people who are incarcerated that have pre-existing conditions. And I'm wondering, you know, early on in the pandemic, we heard from loved ones and advocates that were really concerned about this and the fact that, uh, you know, they weren't able uh, uh, to be released, technically, uh, all of them through di discretionary release, which is something that advocates wanted to see more of. And so what's happening now with prisoners with pre-existing conditions? Well, the, I've done a lot of reporting on how the DOC has tried to up its use of discretionary releases. Um, advocates and, and people who have incarcerated loved ones have been calling for more discretionary releases, more widespread discretionary releases. Um, I mean, the, the, the incarcerated population has changed in that the DOC has made efforts to release folks who are there on less serious conditions. Um, one interesting data point of note is that for years, violation of probation was the most common sentence that, that folks were serving um, in, in prisons and jails. And now it's murder. Um, so it can kind of shows that some of the less serious offenses are, are at least attempting to be weeded out. I mean, violation of probation is now the second most common, um, but it still shows that more serious offenses are being served. As far as vulnerable uh, populations, um, there are bills in the legislature to try to expand folks who will be eligible for, say, compassionate relief parole or medical parole. Um, but the laws on the books are still the laws on the books. And last I heard, the uh, commutation process was still not online, and the compassionate release laws are still quite narrow. So for many folks, there's still a pretty narrow way for them to get out of prison um, before the end of their sentence. We've been talking about the incarcerated population, but what about the staff and the COs, the correctional officers uh, who are also in those prisons each day? Have they been wearing masks, Kellen? This is something that's come up in recent months. And what are other precautions? Because they're the ones that are coming in and out of these uh, prisons. Mask wearing has been probably, the, by correction staff, has been probably the thing I've been hearing about the most over the course of the pandemic. I heard it a lot more earlier in um, that staff were not complying with mask mandates. I mean, the governor issued an executive order and the Department of Correction Commissioner told me that, you know, so long as they are wearing, if, so long as they are within six feet of anyone, they have to be wearing a mask, but otherwise um, they do not need to wear it. Um, I had heard that, that staff were generally flouting that. Um, but on December 24th of last year, right before the end of the year, the Department of Correction or Commissioner issued this directive that required um, correction officers to wear the masks covering their nose at all times. So that seems to have gotten better since then. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, when we think about, again, so much of the attention was how to protect uh, the incarcerated population from COVID-19, but there's been a push in, in recent years for more accountability and reforms of the Connecticut prison system. And so I'm wondering how those conversations are starting to happen now, uh, Kellen. Uh, what can you tell us? So the legislature is, is considering a bill that would create a correction ombuds um, there's a couple different ways that, that the legislature is considering essentially creating a watchdog that would hold the Department of Correction accountable. Because as of right now, um, there's not really a way to hold them accountable beyond um, lawmakers passing reforms. So there's a bill that we'll be, I think we'll be talking about later in the hour about called the Protect Act that would create this, this office of ombuds within the Department of Correction, which actually used to exist years ago, um, but was uh, because of funding issues was, was disbanded. Uh, essentially, it would investigate uh, allegations of abuse or allegations of misconduct, 
uh, and serve as a watchdog for the incarcerated population. And there would also be a, um, a nine member commission that would uh, appoint the correction ombuds and work with that ombuds office to create a sort of more systemic um, series of reforms for the DOC. So we've seen that play out in uh, public hearings at the legislature. And it's been, it's been interesting to hear correction commissioner talk about it, who's, who's appears to be open to it, as well as advocates who have who've been clamoring for this for years, because um, these prisons are really, they're simply a black box. I mean, especially in the past year where there's been no one really going in except for uh, corrections staff. Um, visits have opened up a little bit, but for the most part, we haven't been in or seen the prisons in, in a long time. You mentioned that overall the prison population has continued to decrease. This is something that the DOC commissioner, the new DOC commissioner, Kiros, uh, um, is also thinking about and their proposals to close some prisons. Uh, update us on where things stand, Kellen. Yeah, so on March 1st of 2020, there were over 12,400 people who were in prison or jail. Uh, on March 29th of this year, there were 8,960. That's a, that's a serious, serious decline. Um, so there are almost 3,500 fewer people behind bars today than there were at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it's worth noting that racial disparities have actually increased a little bit since then as well. We went from 70 to 72 percent of, of those who are in prisons or jails are Black or Hispanic. Um, whites make up 27 percent of the prison population, but about two-thirds of state residents overall. Um, but that that decline in the incarcerated population is a huge part of the commissioner's decision to close uh, three correctional facilities by the end of the biennium. So within the next couple of years, one of which has already been announced. And that's Northern, which is uh, notorious, considering it is the, the supermax. And this is the place uh, where uh, individuals who had been sentenced uh, to die for uh, their crimes uh, when the state abolished the death penalty, uh, they're now uh, serving life sentences. So they're the ones that are still at Northern, Kellen? Yes, those, those, those men are still there. Um, there's only eight eight men there on, on what are called special circumstances status who are formerly on death row. There's one man who's still technically on death row. Um, but there are also, there's a host of folks there who are um, there on, on, on administrative segregation, different forms of, of isolated confinement, um, primarily which are used to curb behavior and to essentially get people transition to go back to the general incarcerated population. The last I checked, there were about 70 people at Northern. Now, coming up again, we're going to be talking about efforts to drastically reduce the use of, of solitary confinement in Connecticut prisons. Uh, but when we think about uh, this pandemic and the importance of social distancing, how, what has that meant for people who are incarcerated? Are they spending more time in their cells, Kellen? Yeah, that's that in letters that I have received and from talking to family members, that has been um probably one of the hardest things that, that folks who are incarcerated have had to deal with. I mean, there's been no volunteers going in. So those who were, who were lucky enough to have access to higher education or college classes have been unable to do, to, to meet with their, to their college professors. Um, most of the time guys have been locked in their cells for long periods of time. Um, it's really just been a really isolating year. And so they've had to rely on the phone uh, to, to call their loved ones. But oftentimes that could get disrupted because the unit is on lockdown or there's been a disciplinary issue. So nobody has access to phones. Um, it's been it's been quite a year for, for, for incarcerated people and for their families who have been uh, they haven't been able to touch them. There's been no contact visits that have been restored since before the pandemic. 
You're hearing Kellen Lyons here on Where We Live. He's a reporter who covers justice for the Connecticut Mirror. Kellen's going to stick around. And after the break, we're going to talk more about this issue of solitary confinement. Uh, it's something that is still used in Connecticut prisons today. And you can join the conversation. We're going to learn more about this practice. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Last September, I spoke to Stowe Prize winner Albert Wood Fox, who spent more than 40 years in solitary confinement at Louisiana State Penitentiary, a former plantation. He wrote about his experience in the book Solitary, which was a finalist for the, for the Pulitzer Prize. Wood Fox told me, when you're confined to a six-foot by nine-foot cell for 23 hours a day, it's like you're fighting to breathe. This excerpt in his book still stands out to me. He writes, living in concrete, you get used to the noise. Sound bounces off the floors and walls and echoes. When someone on the tier cracked, you'd hear him cry or scream. Some guys would moan for hours or days. Solitary confinement happens inside Connecticut prisons, too. The Department of Correction calls it administrative segregation. The state says, unlike other states, the practice here does not follow indefinite time frames. But there are efforts by community members to drastically reduce solitary confinement in our state. Joining us now on Zoom is Barbara Fair, lead organizer and member of the steering committee for Stop Solitary CT. Barbara, welcome to the show. Hi. Also with us is Leighton Johnson, public education coordinator and a member of the steering committee for the same organization, Stop Solitary CT. Leighton, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So, Barbara, I'll start with you. I know you've been involved in this work to end solitary confinement in our state for a number of years. So when we talk about solitary confinement, can you describe this practice for us? Well, according to Department of Corrections, it's they name it all different kinds of names and Layton can get more into all the various names. But uh, as far as we're concerned, anyone who's in the cell for over 22 hours a day that by United Nations um, own definition is solitary confinement and torture. So, um, as I said, Layton can tell you more about the actual different names that the Department of Correction uses for solitary, but initially that's what it's about and being isolated uh, away from other people for that many hours a day. And what are the reasons that Department of Correction gives for putting people in solitary confinement, Barbara? Well, many times the the marketing um, that they use is these are the worst of the worst, they're the most violent individuals and, and, they're very common phrase, which I feel is much overused. It's all about um, public safety. Mm. That's interesting you bring that up. Uh, someone tweeted at us, uh, I'm going to quote here, solitary confinement is necessary for managing violent and assaultive inmates. Mm-hmm. To ban it would be dangerous to the staff and inmate population. So respond to that comment again, because this is something that in the general public, I'm sure is shared. Uh, well, they have to market that. I mean, that's how people go along with it. If they really believe that we're we're locking up all these violent and vicious 
uh, criminals, then people will go along with what they're doing. If you look at, um, just say for instance, how they marketed uh, Northern, they said the people that are in there are the worst of the worst. But if you ever talk to the people that's in there and we get many letters from them, they're not the worst of the worst. And I can say that uh, personally because my son at the age of 17 was um, placed in Northern and the, he wasn't the worst of the worst. His only problem was he resisted the abusive treatment that the um, correctional officers um, used. Many times um, the prisoners uh, just adapted to that, that um, abusive conditions. And so um, when anyone resisted in any way, that was a threat to uh, the safety of the um, correctional. So they put him in Northern. So pe people who want to keep Northern places like Northern open or keep the abuse solitary confinement going will always market to the public who don't know any better. They will always market. It's really about safety for the staff or other people. It's so it's all these bad, violent people. But that's not, in fact, who's in there. I understand uh, in your work, uh, Barbara, obviously benchmarking, looking at what, how other states have approached this practice, other states have banned solitary confinement. So when we hear that this practice is not being used in prison, what is the research, the data telling us about um, what that means in terms of reducing violence versus uh, trying to prevent it? Well, one of the things that um, there was a, a Rick Ramos. Uh, in Colorado. He was the executive director in Colorado prisons. And what he did is actually went and stayed in a cell for 20 hours out of a day just to get the, uh, the experience of being isolated. And what he said is that at the end of the day, he realized that um, segregating people, putting people in isolation didn't reduce violence. It actually increased violence and increased intense anxiety and fear and paranoia and you know all kind of um mental illnesses so when people say that that um this actually helps it doesn't help in any way and many of the states are finding that out and they are working their way away from solitary confinement but connecticut's just been a little slow in getting there you're hearing Barbara Fair again here on Where We Live. She's lead organizer and member of the steering committee for Stop Solitary CT. Also with us is Leighton Johnson, who's a member of this organization as well. Uh, Leighton, you were formerly incarcerated. You spent some time at Northern. And so I wanted to ask you, when we talk about solitary confinement, what do you want the public to know about this practice? Well, as Ms. Barbara said, and um, as a, a, a lot of us know, um, solitary is 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 used in 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 a, a bunch of different um forms. So um, it's torture, no matter what they they put it. Um, it's used um, for just seg segregation, just regular and just regular so called population. It's um, used to control people, um, and you know, like like Miss Barbara said, the smallest of infractions can get you in, in segregation. So um, contrary to people's belief that in, in, in society that people who go to segregation or, you know, administrative administrative segregation or um, whatever form, RHU, SHU, the gang unit, whatever they want to call it, um, that that people are going there because they're violent. And that's that's um, far from from the truth. And, and I can speak from my own experience 
and also from the experience of a lot of incarcerated individuals that I was with in Northern CI. Mm. So, Leighton, if you don't mind me asking, uh, tell us about what it was like to be isolated and some of the reasons why you were put in solitary confinement during your time. Oh, wow. Um, we we would have to be here for, for a long time for me to really, you know, get you to understand what it's like. But um, I was I was sent to um, to Northern CI um, from having a, a fight and um, I had a fight. This is this had happened to have been my my fourth ticket um, ticket being a disciplinary action that you that you receive. Um, within a short period of time, a four-month four period time. And um, I had a, I had only been in, in prison for about a year on a 10-year 10, 10 sentence. It was, it was, it was, it was kind of hard to adjust to, to, to that and just understanding that I had a 10-year sentence in this um, oppressive, you know, environment. Um, the other tickets that I did receive weren't any, you know, in violence or anything. They they was what the, the Department of Corrections like to give out a lot was um disobeying a direct order. So you can get a disobeying a direct order ticket for the for a, a various um um things to to the, even to the point of not getting off the phone fast enough when you're talking to, to your um loved one or not, you know, locking up fast enough, get, getting out the shower too slow. Mm-hmm. And you can get a disciplinary ticket, and they have it in in in, in their um, directives that if you catch four tickets, no matter what the tickets are, within a certain amount of period, now you're eligible to go to Northern on um, chronic disciplinary um, um, status. And now you're in there with you know the people who are so-called the worst of the worst, if, if people wants to call call them that, but. Like I said, the majority of people who are in there are in there for small infractions. What was the longest time that you were in solitary confinement, Leighton, and how did that affect you uh, even years later? Um, I, I, I spent um, between the two the two different times that I went there, um, and both for being being for having a, a fight. Um, between the two times. I spent five years inside, and then um, also on, on on top of that, just my my stints in um, going to seg segregation for whatever reasons, small infractions, not you know violence, anything of that nature. Um, it's 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 an innumerable amount of time, but um, solitary confinement is specifically in, in northern. That really, 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 um, you know, does something to your to your psyche. Could you could you just imagine um, um, being in inside of a, a small um, a small cell, um, no TV, um, the the way the, the walls are bare, the, there's there's really no air for you to breathe uh, because of how the, the cell is is, is made. Um, it's freezing cold in the winter time because they keep the um, the air on blast for whatever reason, and then you can get a ticket if you cover the vent. So um, either you have to just deal with the cold air, or you can risk getting a ticket for for trying to stay warm. And then in the in the, in the summertime, it's extremely hot to the point where um, even the um, toilet and the, everything in the cell was sweating because it's a concrete and um, a metal cell. 
So um, just imagine being in this in this place for 23 hours a day, sometimes, and this is during the week, sometimes 24 hours a day because you're at the whim of the, the officers. And, some, and you know, a lot of the time when I was in there, the officers had just basically free will to um, treat us however they wanted to. So if you if 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 they came to your cell at seven in the morning, and they said, did you did you want rent? And you was, you know, sleeping and you jumped up and you said yes, but you didn't move fast enough for them. They would say, well, you're all set and, and you just try again tomorrow. Lock the, the um, you know, the door and, and now you're locked in for 24 hours. Um, and on the weekends, it's 48 hours. You don't come out on the weekends. Um, you get three showers a, a week. Um, and that's if that's that's if they choose to let you out. Everywhere you go, you're chained up, full restraints, um, like a slave. You know, I could still hear the um, the sounds of the chains dragging on the floor. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD um, since I've come home. Um, I also, with something I've, I've never spoke of, but I've also have um, lipomas, which are, um, you know, these fatty deposits on, on my arms, um, like, you know, like like lumps and to the point where I thought they was cancer at one time and I was a little nervous. And I, I've never had any of these issues, including high blood pressure that I did develop when I was inside that I, I've overcome, but I've never had any of these issues until I went through the experience of solitary confinement. Um, well, thank you for describing that, um, Leighton. Again, Leighton Johnson, who's a member of Stop Sol Solitary CT. Uh, Barbara Fair is still with us. Uh, Leighton did an excellent job describing uh, what this was like for him. And I wanted you, Barbara, to talk more about uh, how this practice impacts mental health, both in the short and long term. Um, I can tell you um, like I'll, just before I get to that, I just because I'm sitting here and I'm listening to um, Layton and I'm getting anxious. So um, that's one of the um, the byproducts of uh, what families have to face, knowing that their loved ones went through this. Is uh, when my son was in Northern, I spent nights um, awake, crying, having panic attacks. Um, I would get up in the middle of the night and go to my door because I felt I didn't have enough air to breathe. I felt like my son was pulling on my spirit and crying out for me. And so I was uh, a mental wreck as, as well. And um, he's been out like 20 years and I still, when I go back to reliving that, I still get full of anxiety. So I'm trying to calm that as I talk. Um, some of the things that the mental health issues that um, people experience in there are depression and intense um, anxiety, visual and auditory hallucinations, um, depression, insomnia, paranoia. Um, some commit suicide and as Layton said, um, suffer PTSD. And that can be decades after um, they've been in prison. If you remember the story about Kelly Broder, he said after he came home, he said he kept a smile on his face and everybody thought he was fine. And Kelly Broder, for people who don't know, is the young man who spent a couple of years in Rikers in solitary. And um, he was pretrial as my son was. And um, 
when he came home, he said, you know, he tried to be happy-go-lucky and smiling for, for the people, but he said inside he was a mess. And so he ended up committing suicide. So it's a real struggle. And um, all these years later, just with my son, uh, he continues to have, um, you know, days when he's doing okay. Um, and then those days where he's feeling really depressed and tense uh, anxiety and a lot of PTSD. And um, we, we have to work through that because, you know, for the first time, really, he told me that there were times when he felt suicidal. He never told me that before. So I was like really, really uh, upset here and that. And so I struggle with uh, trying to keep him on, 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 on the good side of life. And, and, and he's, he's fortunate that I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So I understand what he's going through and um, trying to get him through life without being drugged up. And so far, I thank God for a whole year now he has been um, without any kind of medication and he went through a cycle of um, alcohol and drugs and he has, he's been clean. So um, I feel with the hope that we continue to have that, you know, we, I can get my son back. He feels he'll never be more than 70%. He says that if he can maintain a 70%, then he'll be okay. Cause he feels he'll never be the same after what happened to him. But I, I remain hopeful that I can get more than 70% of my son back. I wanted to share a tweet, uh, Barbara. Uh, Kathy writes, most people who go to prison eventually get out. Creating trauma and inflicting damage on people while they are incarcerated isn't, quote, correcting anyone or anything. It's time to end this practice. And so I wanted you to respond to that and describe again, uh, there are um, there are bills, there is a specific bill that looks to drastically reduce this practice in our state. Can you, can you talk about that? Um, well, what Stop Solitary has um, before the judiciary is what we call the PROTECT Act. And it's, it's really the acronym for an act promoting responsible oversight, treatment, and effective correctional transparency. So number one thing is to, to stop extreme isolation, period. And that includes not only the people who are in their cells for 22 hours or more a day for punitive measures, which that should never happen, but we're also talking about those prisons where people are locked in a block for over 22 hours a day as a norm. We want to see that end. We want people to have at least eight hours out of their cell, which means correctional officers now have to work, get some programming in there for people, and try to work toward uh, rehabilitation because these people will eventually come back home. And when they come back home broken in spirit and mind, now that family and that community has to live with with that broken person. So that's, that's what's make our, our communities unsafe. Another thing we want to do is end all kind of abusive restraints. Uh, the story of Carl Talbot, um, who died in New Haven Correctional two years ago uh, this month, he was in five-point restraints, and they pepper sprayed him and left him in the cell. And when they came back hours later, he was dead. People have to wonder, why would you even have to pepper spray someone who's in five-point restraints? Because five-point restraints means you're really chained down. So what is the point of adding to it by pepper spraying them? And then you leave them in there. You're supposed to have like, I think 15 minute check-ins. If they did that, they, wouldn't, they would have known that he had died. 
So we want to end those kind of things from happening. We want um, to um, protect social bonds. We're asking for free phone calls. For me uh, personally, I feel with all the money that uh, the state makes off of the, the, the incarcerated people, they work for long hours for 75 cents to a dollar a day. And for that alone, the, the least the state can offer is free phone calls. So I don't see why that's even an issue. Those people um, who, uh, uh, you know, because of the 13th Amendment are allowed to be enslaved. So give them free phone calls at least. Um, another thing we're looking at is making sure the correctional officers are, are uh, psychologically well. Because uh, if they have these people's uh, lives in their hands, if they're not well, then you can imagine some of the things like Layton was talking about where they pretty much do what they want to do to you because you're out of sight you're, and no one can tell, no one has any oversight over what these people are doing. So we need to make sure they're well. And being in that kind of environment, many uh, people will, I mean, people who went in the system wanting to help, be helpful, Many have left because they couldn't um, adapt to that kind of abusive environment. But then you also have those who go along with it. And so the whole uh, wellness will help correctional officers who want to do the right thing, be able to keep them well, and protect their their sanity. Uh, Barbara, we heard um, Barbara, we heard late um, um, oh. Kellen uh, say earlier uh, that there's also a measure to have to ensure um, accountability and oversight and right. there'd be a creation of a corrections ombuds. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that that's something that could uh, really make a difference? That's most important. And uh, and that's what I was just getting ready to get to. We're, we want to ensure that there's oversight and accountability uh, because when no one, no one's eyes are on you, you pretty much do what you want to do. So we feel if there was someone inside the ombudsman where um, incarcerated people can write complaints to, then um, it'll it'll reduce a lot of this, the lawsuits going on right now because with having oversight within the system means some people may not get them all, but some people are going to do things a whole lot better because they know people are looking where right now no one's looking on uh, what's going on inside. I wanted to bring uh, Leighton Johnson back into the conversation, also a member of Stop Solitary at CT. You know, in recent years, there have been efforts in Connecticut, uh, in certain prisons, I should say, where there's more emphasis on rehabilitation. There are specific units uh, that uh, reward uh, people who are incarcerated with special programming to help make that transition uh, when they're done with their sentence. I wanted you to talk about that uh and also the fact that is there a way to focus our correctional system on rehabilitation across the board versus this piecemeal effort? Um, yeah, um, I think that should that should be the the purpose of you know corrections. If if they're gonna um you know call themselves the Department of Corrections, then they they should actually be trying to correct people and and, and sending people back home better and um actually able to be contributing members functional contributing members of society because um if, if like miss barbara said if if you're sending people home um who already let's be uh, let's let's be clear people um the majority of the people who are inside the racial disparities are not um by accident um this is an extended form of um you know slavery and um so and 
the people who are inside are already come with pre-trauma. And, uh, so the, the trauma of just 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 being an oppressed people already. And then you come to, to prison and have further oppression. So there should the, the purpose should be to have more rehabilitative programs and um, vocational programs. And, and instead of a, a punitive, you know, um, approach to things, there should be, uh, um, you know, instead of that, it should, it should be more of a um, proactive approach to, to, to give people treatment and um, rehabilitation and programs of that, that nature inside. So, like, I think you spoke to, like, the true unit in Cheshire, mm-hmm. which actually is really um, works from, from my understanding. I, I haven't heard of any issues in, in that unit. And I, I know, actually know a couple of the brothers, the older brothers who, who are in there who um, mentor and you know, facilitate that unit and mentor the, the youth who, who, who are coming in with, with probably long sentences, but they're coming in early. And the ones who are mentoring them are the people who was at one time considered so, so-called the worst of the worst because of the, you know their um, the past, whatever. But th- these are the people that the units are working because they're giving them a lot of skills that that the youth need in order to to maintain and cope with the trauma and, and the, be- the the behavior um, from that trauma that they experienced, um, and then the units work. So more of that should be throughout the entire system. Um, Leighton, Leighton, we know that uh, Northern is slated to close. When you heard that news as someone who was formerly incarcerated there, how'd you feel? Oh, I was, I was, I was excited and elated. um, It's it's beyond words of how I felt. I also was um, emotional also because I, I, like I said, I spent of close to five years in, in, in that place. And it was it was one of the worst periods in, in, in my life. I've, I've never felt as depressed and sad and anxious all the time, like, and, um, you know, just, just stressed out and um, to the point of, of losing my mind, but I, I had to keep some semblance of um, sanity and um, avoid, um, you know, getting, getting, on, on, on the medications that they give out like 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 candy they to to um this eight this disarm people um so I felt very good but then I also felt that um we we wasn't done um we got a whole lot more that that needs to be done throughout the system just on, on a whole with people needs more time outside of their cells and more um programs vocational giving them skills and and trauma-infused um, programs, also um, fatherhood programs, fatherhood programs, um, a lot of just things so that people could come home with these skills. Barbara Farah, before we end, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, now that Northern Correctional is slated to close, what do you think should happen to that building? Definitely demolished. It That building just represents two... Um, um, too much pain for too many people. And so it needs to be demolished. It never should be used for human beings again. But our, our like Layton said, our big job now is to make sure that the practices that were going on in Northern don't just get moved to another facility. 
And so that's um, that's our biggest um, job right now is to make sure that do that doesn't happen. Because Northern, what went on in Northern was about, that was the place it happened, but that kind of uh, abuse and torture can happen at any facility. And so we wanna make sure that we not only shut down Northern, demolish it, get it out of our minds, but that it's not happening in places like Corrigan or Walker or places like that. That's Barbara Fair, lead organizer and member of the steering committee for Stop Solitary CT. Barbara, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. And Leighton Johnson, thank you. And Leighton Johnson was also here, also a member of Stop Solitary CT. Leighton, we thank you for your time. Thank you again for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we'll bring back Kellen Lyons. Again, he's a reporter who covers justice for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, now that the Connecticut DOC plans on closing Northern, what does that mean for the individuals there? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. With us again is Kellen Lyons, a reporter who covers justice for the Connecticut Mirror. Kellen, there's a lot to unpack there. Just hearing uh, from Barbara and Leighton alone, I know you covered a public hearing recently uh, where this PROTECT Act was discussed. And I'm curious uh, what the DOC is saying about the practice of solitary, including um, from leadership, uh, the new DOC commissioner, Kiros. So it's worth noting that uh, the Department of Correction Commissioner Kiros has, has three decades in the agency. He's not some outside reformer. Um, he's He's been in the agency for, for 30 years, 31 years. Um, he told me as recently as last fall that uh, administrative segregation is, is, is an essential tool for, for prison administrators. Um, and during the public hearing, he said that the simple answer is yes, that's a direct quote, uh, when asked if there were some folks who were so dangerous they needed to be separated from the rest of the population. However, he did say that he was undergoing his own independent review of the restrictive housing policies that the Department of Correction has on the books, um, which would imply that he recognizes that there's been a, a, a a public shift, a political shift, uh, and perhaps within the Department of Correction, a philosophical shift and a recognition that that perhaps these, these policies that dictate when people are, are held in solitary could be and should be revised. Uh, and he indicated that he was willing and was in active talks with advocates and found the members of the incarcerated to try to increase out of cell time and to try to roll back some of these policies or at least bring them up to the present day since they haven't been updated in about eight years. Mm. It's interesting to hear uh, the commissioner acknowledge uh, a change in philosophy, but how do correction officers feel about these changes, Kel? Correction officers were not thrilled before the announcement that Northern was going to be closed. I mean, the, the commissioner has talked at length with me and others about how it's such a difficult decision to choose a correction facility to close because it's, uh, it's, it's changing a, a correction officer's life, a day-to-day -day life. You know, they can't put their kid on the on the bus uh, to go to school each morning because they have perhaps have a longer commute or their shift starts at a different time. Uh, correction officers writ large um, 
they saw Northern as a place that offered flexibility. Um, Northern is a place that, that was sort of like a, a, an inkblot, a Rorschach inkblot for, for many. Um, correction officers saw it as a place that, that offered flexibility to, to house folks who, during the pandemic, who had tested positive for COVID. Um, I, I think perhaps some older heads in the Department of Corrections see it as a place that, that deals with individuals who are, are dangerous or quote unquote, the worst of the worst, you know, in theory, pose a threat to, to themselves or others. Um, and, and advocates and those who have been incarcerated there see it as this place that is essentially a torture house um, that's extremely isolating, that exacerbates mental health issues and conditions, um, and in fact can put people in emotional distress because of how isolating it is. But correction officers themselves, um, the few that I talked to had said that it offers flexibility for the DOC system as a whole by, by sort of being a place that, that can stand in and house folks um, who are either a danger to themselves or others, or uh, who at the beginning of the pandemic were sick with COVID. Uh, Barbara Fair made a really good point at the end of uh, our conversation about while Northern is closing, it's important that these practices at Northern aren't uh, just uh, moved to a different uh, prison. And so I guess that's the whole point of this PROTECT Act is to really limit uh, solitary confinement to some extreme um, exceptions. Uh, so what are you hearing from lawmakers? Is this the year where they're going to take some of what this is in this bill and make it law? Well, it's worth noting that Stop Solitary isn't the only group that has that concerned. There's also um, an ongoing lawsuit that uh, the ACLU of Connecticut and Disability Rights Connecticut filed um, dealing with administrative segregation, um, or, or I'm sorry, in-cell restraints uh, at Northern Correctional Institution. Um, that was filed several days before the um, Northern's closure was announced. And so there's been paperwork filed to try to broaden that lawsuit to include other prisons as well. And that's a lawsuit that the state is seeking to dismiss. Um, legislators are, there appears to be movement behind this in the Judiciary Committee. Um, there was a quite a long public hearing and this, the PROTECT Act was scheduled for a long, uh, there were a lot of bills up that day, a lot of bills up that day. And the PROTECT Act um, received a lot of the testimony and, and in fact started off the day. So it was a um, it looks as though there's movement to try to get the spirit of the PROTECT Act passed. Um, so we'll see. And again, this is not a full right ban on solitary confinement. Uh, is this a compromise to get lawmakers to agree to ways to drastically reduce it, but yet having this uh, for, say, the people we talked about earlier, the ones who used to be on death row, Kellen? It appears that way. I mean, it looks as though the correction commissioner was saying that he was doing this on his own uh, and was essentially telling lawmakers to trust me. Um, and the chair of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Gary Winfield, had said that he had heard that from his predecessors before um, and was, was reticent to believe that. Um, but it looks as though they're, they're, it doesn't outright ban isolated confinement in general, um, but it does drastically, drastically limit it. Um, there are, will still be certain special circumstances where that applies. Uh, and I had heard from, from, from Stop Solitary and from others that the hope is that it will also appear to the special circumstances folks um, who are also, uh, who were formerly on death row, although that may be moot because there was a lawsuit where the Second Circuit Court of Appeals um, struck down that statute governing their confinement as unconstitutional. So they may blend into um, a general incarcerated population anyway, or be reclassified and de determined to be in a higher security setting. 
That's Kellen Lyons, a reporter who covers justice for the Connecticut Mirror, and he's a Report for America core member. Kellen, I really appreciate the context you provided. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show is produced by Joe Vasquez and Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about our show, download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. <laughs>